You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we're grateful again this morning for your word. We come back to it every day, awed by how you have put it together in such a way that it gives us grace and the means to hear your voice through your words that your Holy Spirit might cause them to live out in us. And so this morning as we look into this book of 1 Corinthians and, and see the difficulties that Paul encountered and how you counseled him, how you inspired him to write words that would bring that church back to balance. Let us apply those words to our lives today and we'll thank you for what you're going to accomplish with them in Jesus' name. Amen. So, let me first get this to wherever it's supposed to be. And uh, we're going to start, we, we might actually finish chapter, whatever chapter we're on today. Who knows what chapter we're on? It's a five-point question. Could we? Okay. I think we'll do that. But first, we will read chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan, for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know the little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. Just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with the moral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So this will be this chapter is just another another example in the litany of the wide swings that, that poor theology will, can cause people to, to, to take from one extreme to another. Never assuming the balance that Scripture gives. I shouldn't say never, but very regu- rarely assuming the balance. So last week we ended with verse 7, where Paul encouraged them to clean out the old leaven so that they could become a new lump, just because in fact they were unleavened and Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. So he... He makes the connection to the Passover 
And uh, as I, I read it last week, and it was needed in need of correction, I'd kind of like to just look at it again. During Passover week, all leaven was to be removed from the house, and only unleavened bread was to be eaten as a reminder of the Passover sacrifice. Paul is calling the Corinthians to remove this leaven, and again return in this area to righteousness, and in all the other areas that he's dealing with them and will deal with them. He's telling them to be what they are, born again, blood-bought, Passover blessed believers. When the Israelites were brought out of Egypt, they baked bread to sustain them while they traveled, but they were not allowed to add leaven. First of all, they did not have time to wait for the dough to rise, but also for them, bread represented the maintenance of life and the Passover. The Exodus represented the deliverance from their old life in Egypt and moving to a new life and the promise, moving to the promise that God was giving. The leaven represented the old life, the way of Egypt and the world, which was to be done away with. So when they left Egypt, and in every Passover since, the Lord commanded that nothing leaven shall be seen among you. Exodus chapter 13, 3 and 7. So they had to throw every, every bit of their leaven out. In the same way, Paul is reminding the Christians in Corinth that they were separated from their old life, as we were, by the blood of Jesus Christ. This would be especially pertinent in Corinth, for the old life was so immoral. Um, Again, it only takes one sin to separate you from God. But certain sins have a different effect on the body and a different effect on the psyche than others. All sin is punished. All sin separates us from God. They were to bring nothing of their old life into the new life. The picture of the Passover and God's perfect Passover lamb brings that home to the Corinthians and to us. The payment of blood of Jesus' blood severs us from the dominion of sin and from the penalty of judgment. The Corinthians and we should remove everything from the old life that would taint the new life. So then Paul is going to move into. Um, he, he, what he does is he, he states something and he supports it and he explains it. And it's just interesting that uh, to, re- to reflect on the fact that years earlier, Paul had taught all this to the Corinthians. And he's written them other letters. So this is not the first brush they've had with this information. So we ended up with verse 7, which, again, uh, clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has also also has been sacrificed. Verse 8 then says, Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, that's been removed, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Interesting that he would introduce those two words here. Um, and I actually had a brush with this this week. Uh, someone who owed me money, who is simply never, ever going to be able to, to deal with it. They're Christians. So I'm going to send them to jail. I'm going to call the cops. I'm going to call the FBI. I think I'll call Homeland Security. They all know where I live anyway. Pardon? Yeah, that'll get me paid quicker. So as if to punctuate this, Paul says again, not to celebrate, and I'll I'll get back to my little soliloquy there in just a minute about malice and wickedness, because that's indeed what it would have been. Uh, He says, Paul says not to celebrate with the old leaven, and I believe here he alludes to some of the things that he's going to be dealing with later in the letter, malice and wickedness, things that would prompt some of the other types of wickedness the Corinthians were living out. They were to live unleavened, sin-removed. In sincerity and truth. Sincerity and truth. Two great words. 
Sincerity is an attitude of genuine and open honesty from which truth springs. In the same way, malice or an evil nature nurtures and results in wickedness. By removing impurities from themselves under the, under the control of the Holy Spirit through the word of God and removing the sinning man from their midst, they would be able, therefore, to celebrate the feast of salvation properly. Because every time they then, more so than today, it's more, it was more, um, more significant in New Testament times. The, the, when we celebrate uh, communion, it's significant. We do it once a month. In these times, it was done often, very often. And I'll get to that as well. And so Paul is saying if they would remove the old leaven, the leaven of malice and wickedness, then they can celebrate the feast of salvation properly. And doesn't, aren't we reminded every time we have communion to first pray and ask God for forgiveness for anything that may have come between us before we celebrate communion? Why? Later on, Paul tells these same Corinthians that because of this, there are people who have died, who are asleep, he says, because they have celebrated communion unworthily. God has seen fit to punish them. And so it's terribly important to, to remove the old leaven, to remove the sin and celebrate the feast of the, of the Passover lamb of Christ with sincerity and truth. Any comments about verse eight? Verse nine. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, immoral people. Associate. Interesting word. And this was brought up last week. There's a general consensus, first of all, among people and commentators. And the language seems very clear here to me and to, and to the folks that I, I studied that Paul is alluding to a previous letter he wrote to the Corinthians. He has not specifically stated that they should not associate with the moral people previous to this verse in this letter. So it's, it's the general impression that when he says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the moral people, that it was another letter, one of the uh, lost letters to the Corinthians or the lost letter. Um, and it's very probable that the apostles wrote many letters to the churches that were pertinent to the times, but that had God has not seen fit to sustain down through history for us. Here, Paul is beginning the dissertation on another misunderstanding and a misapplication of theology that the Corinthians were living in or under. The word associate means to mix up together. It's to keep company with, to be in, intimate with. It's, it's, uh, it's not quite the strength, but it's similar to the strength of the husband and wife relationship, but not, not quite. It's the person you spend time with, the people you, you go to dinner with, the people that you go to the movies with, the people that you... Do whatever uh, fun things that you do with. They're the people that you spend time with. That's what Paul's talking about here. I wrote to you not to mix with, to, to spend your leisure and your study and your other time with immoral people. And the word, um, uh, properly understood, the word associate, which is translated company in the King James, does mean to mix. It doesn't just mean to be around. It actually means, as I said, to spend time with. And frankly, this is very logical, as God's word always is. It's impossible Unless you live on a mountaintop somewhere, not to run across believers who are living in an immoral way. The counsel here is not to mingle and keep company with them. And the word immoral is the same word we get. Uh, it's pornos. Um, the same word we get that is the general 
catch-all word in some ways for the immoral actions of people. Uh, it comes from the same root where we get the word pornography. It came to denote in the New Testament, specifically, it did come to denote a fornicator. Specifically, two people having relations that were not married to one another. But it can also have, as its intent, all the other promiscuous and immoral things that the Greeks did in those days. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing. In some ways, I see us replicating these days where the bar of immorality was so low, or the bar of righteousness was so low that almost anything immoral could be excused, could be excused one way or another, whether it was living together or you fill in the blank. That's what was happening in the Greek culture. Anything could be excused. Any comments about verse 9? Or questions? Verse 10. Now, here's where, here's where Paul says, okay, so verse 9, he said it. Okay, I'm going to imitate Paul. Verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Do you think Paul made that kind of a point? I don't know what I did. So do I need to just stand like this? What's that? It is. I'm going to bring a baseball next week. With the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or with swindlers, or with idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. I won't slap my forehead anymore. But he just, you guys. <laughs> As can be typical of people not properly understanding scripture, the Corinthians swung widely in their behavior. It would have been especially, especially difficult in New Testament times, especially in New Testament Greece, not to be around the types of behaviors named in this verse. The Greeks, as I said, didn't have a particularly high bar for morality of any kind. A culture immersed in the kind of sexual sin they had was also beset by covetousness, by swindling, by idolatry. They had temples to everyone. If they weren't sure, they had a temple to an unknown God, just in case they didn't offend him. Remember the one Paul talked to him in Athens? Well, we better, we, we've got... 17 bazillion gods, but we might have missed one. So let's have a temple to an unknown one, just in case. We don't want to offend one of those guys. The fact is, though, it's much easier, it's much easier for believers to isolate themselves from the world into little conclaves comprised of closed-in churches that give no access to the outside world. Monasteries spring to mind. Our interaction with the world is actually God's interaction with the world. Is it not? He has chosen not to walk among the, the world in person. He has chosen to indwell his, his children with his Holy Spirit. And they are his hands and feet. You've heard that probably in Sunday school with the little flannel graph designs. But it's a fact. That's how God interacts with the world. Uh, unfortunately, of course, being imperfect people, the Corinthians and we often misrepresent the Lord. The fact is, often the only way the world can see the gospel is when it is lived out in the lives of those who love the Lord. Jesus himself, in his prayer in John 17, said that he did not intend for the Father to take believers out of the world. And Paul is probably maybe alluding to that. 
out of the world, but only to keep them from the evil one. The fact is, in Philippians 2.15, there's our, our, our uh, explanation of immoral. But in, in Philippians 2.15, uh, Paul says that even in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation, Christians are to appear as lights in the world. Remember in Matthew, you don't put your light under a bushel, do you? There's even a cute little kid's song about it. It's theologically pretty sound. Philippians 2.15. So that you will, Paul says, prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. And then Jesus himself reminded his followers that they were to be lights in the world as well. Matthew 5, 13 through 15. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. We're the light of the world? Holy mackerel. That's not good. Sometimes I think. But Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So the added phrase, quote, for then you would have to go out of the world, close quote, seems to be Pauline hyperbole, but it gets the point across. It's, it's like he's saying, um, come on, guys, I didn't say what you think I said, I, and I think you know it. Unfortunately, misunderstanding this whole concept, I think, gave rise to the monastic movement. Even today, some Christians think it's important to separate themselves from the world in such a manner. One commentator noted that this would be tantamount to living in a Christian ghetto. <laughs> Paul never intended for this to happen. Again, poor theology results in wrong behavior, complete with wide pendulum swings from one extreme to another. Now, is there a time to get away with beloved believers and be recharged and strengthened? You bet. You bet. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, is these groups that think that, that there ain't no good people around but them. You've heard the joke. St. Peter's telling the guy to walk really quietly past this one group of people as they're in heaven. I mean, this is such bad theology, but it's funny. And so the guy gets blind and he goes, why do I have to be quiet? He goes, well, that's the such and such. I'll leave that blank. And they think they're the only ones here. You haven't heard that? I should tell you the whole thing. I mean, it's, it's like a four-minute shaggy dog joke, but we won't do that. <laughs> anyway, yes, there's a time to gather, to spend time with believers and get recharged. And we do that once a week, don't we? And it's good. And it's a recharging. And it's encouragement. But then God expects us to go out into the world and to shine as lamps in a crooked and perverse generation. To, to be people who have the kind of different life that calls others to Christ. That's what he calls us to do. And they were they were going to leave, they were going to close in and not influence Corinth at all. If any place in the ancient world needed influence, biblical Christian influence, it was the city of Corinth. Again, we talked about it earlier in the introduction. It had become a byword. If you wanted to call somebody a bad name, you would call them a Corinthian. I'm trying to think of a modern equivalent. You know, I can think of a couple, but they're just I'm, they're associated with things that are are nasty. And so I'm just not going to say it anyway. Any comments about verse 10? Go out of the world. Uh, Ron. 
Treat him like a publican and a tax collector. Can a publican and a tax collector be a Christian? <laughs> I agree. IRS, did you hear that? You treat them respectfully, but you treat them with church discipline. And we're going to go through that. So you treat them. We're never called to be snarky, vicious, disrespectful to anyone. But we, all call, we are called to call the truth the truth and to deal with the truth in such a way. And so what he's talking about here is he's going to give us an example. But I, he said... Treat the immoral people of the world, treat, treat Christians who are acting like the world differently than you treat Christians who are acting like Christians. Would you agree with that? Okay. And why? He's going to give us the reason for that. To bring them back. To bring them back. So, I'm, I guess I'm not quite getting your, I'm not quite understanding your concern, I, I guess. It went... It, that's probably what made that noise earlier. Mm -hmm. Yes. You will associate within the same amount as you would associate associate with an unbeliever when they come into my store. I would have an opportunity there, but I would not seek them out to go to the movies or go to dinner with them or spend time with them as families. So you would have you're going to have interaction with people in the world all, all the time, even folks like that. Folks who are being you're 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 being called to. I don't know what the good word is. The word is excommunicate today. OK. And even then. So you excommunicate, but you're still going to see them. You will treat them like you would a taxpayer or a public a publican. You would treat them with, as someone who you would give the gospel to, who you would love in that way. But you don't, you don't associate, you don't mix with them anymore. And that's where it gets hard. When it's someone in your family, when it's someone whom you've been close to before in church, and they've started living in a way that does not honor God, you have to disassociate them, yourself from them in, in, a, in the manner that you were mixing with them. You can no longer mix, associate, go to dinner, you know, do all the... Do all the friendship things that you do. Now, you treat them like someone you've just met. Someone you don't know well. And actually, in some ways, you find out you didn't know them well. <laughs> you may find out that you didn't know them well. Does that help? Okay. But actually, he said, and here's where we get into it. I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such an one. The whole lot here. Clarifying the teaching which Paul gave them earlier, and they should have remembered, Paul uses the term describing someone who has the Greek as he appropriated the name of a brother. It's, it's kind of like someone who puts an MD behind his name and he's not really a doctor. 
he put he, he acts like a doctor. He might he might speak in Latin terms. He might diagnose things. Um, I read one time about a man who made it all the way to college. He was a teacher in college and he couldn't read. He couldn't. Yeah, he couldn't read. How did he get that far? It was in Reader's Digest, Pat. It had to be true. Anyway, is there still a Reader's Digest around? Okay, I haven't seen it in a while. But he acted like a teacher. He did the things the teacher did. But do you really think you can be a teacher if you can't read? I, yeah, you, <laughs> good answer, Pat. You can't teach reading. So this is a person who acts like a Christian, appropriates the name of Christianity, but does not live like it. It's, it's two people living together who claim to be Christians. That's a hard one because it happens more today than probably, well, I don't know about any time in history, but more than I can ever remember. It has to do with movement. So now this may be someone who is a Christian, but is certainly not acting like it, or who is not a Christian, but claims to be one. We don't know their heart. We don't know people's hearts. There can be people around us every day who aren't saved, but have been acting like it for years. Uh, now that we don't need to fret. God knows. But we need to treat them as they, as they behave. And, and is that judgmental? Yeah, it's discerningly judgmental. Either way, the responsibility of the church is not to associate with them, not to even eat with them. Now, in the New Testament setting, this actually would have been far more injurious to the so-called brethren. In those days, it was common for believers to eat together often, and the action of eating together communicated much more than it does today. Uh, it was more than just a sense of association. It was an open expression of their community, their love for one another, and a close, their close association with one another. It does have the same in respect to people that you care for greatly and you invite into your home to spend time with to, for Bible study, for, for whatever it is that you do for fun in your home. So this was more than just denying them a seat at the Lord's table. It was actually a societal shunning, if you will. Brings to mind, I'm trying to think of it, the sex nowadays that does that. Well, I can't think of any. I should have looked it up. But anyway, it brings to mind shunning. The list Paul, by the way, gives here of, of negative qualities is an abbreviated one. and It was never intended to be comprehensive. So you can only not associate with them if they're covetous, idolatrous, revilers, drunkards, swindlers, or immoral. I got to thinking about it after I wrote that. That covers pretty much most of it, doesn't it? It's a pretty general statement when you when you really think about it. Uh, it does cover most areas of sin. The unbeliever is still dominated by sin and cannot. The unbeliever is still dominated by sin and cannot make the choice not to do so in any real and lasting way. Believers, by by uh, contrast, have been freed from the dominion of sin, but can voluntarily choose to sin. Once a believer does that, they will develop sinful patterns unless they repent. Later in chapter 6, Paul lays some of this out where he explains that unbelievers will not enter the kingdom of God and that some of the Corinthians were still acting like that. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor Drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And I would add, act like it. Act like it. Since they were washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Should they not live like it? And when some in their congregation did not live like it, but claimed the name of Christian, those errant believers or unrepentant unbelievers needed to be avoided and shunned. This would include corporate and individual relationships. Really quickly, exploring the, 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 uh, the words here. Immoral, again, is the same word, pornos, with where we get pornography. Um, covetous is not just, it's, it's, a, it's an awful word. It's not just somebody who wants stuff. He wants what you have. So you won't have it. It's not just, you've got an excavator. I'd like to have an excavator. I want your excavator, and I want you to be sad because you don't have it. That's what covetousness is. Idolater. Idolater is a worshiper of false gods. Today, we worship all kinds of false gods. We worship security. We worship money. We worship TV um, personalities. We ask for their opinions on political issues. And they usually can't spell. Drunkard. Very simple. Someone who's intoxicated. Who stumbles around. It, it comes from a word that means to be drunk, stumbling around. <laughs> Swindler. This is a, a rapacious robber. Someone who, who, who his whole bent is to get stuff from people. Um, and then, uh, and, it, and then uh, I guess that was all of them. So, so Paul covered the gamut there. Pretty much when you, when you extrapolate those sins out into all the areas that they connect with, he pretty much covered it all. But, but don't, don't make the mistake of thinking this is the list. If they do one of these five things, is it five? One, two, three, four, five, six things. I can't eat with them. But if, they, if they're just a bank robber, well, I guess that would be, you know. <laughs> you get my drift here. The idea is if they claim the name of Christ, and they're living in an immoral way in any way. We have a responsibility. And it doesn't mean, you don't just say, you're out of my life. We'll talk about what you do. Actually, we're going to, we may make it to that. So, today it would be well for those in positions of responsibility in local churches to actually develop a systematic approach to this with consequences described and understood. Responses to so-called believers living in sin, such as the sin this man was living in would include what is commonly called excommunication. This would necessarily consist of, as mentioned before, corporate and individual avoidance of contact, but done in a loving way. Because remember, Paul has said they're to be treated as brothers. They're to be treated as brothers. That's, is that where you're getting the, the angst? Okay. They claim to be Christians. We have to deal with them. We're to treat them, as, we're to treat them with respect, but we're to, to separate ourselves from them. Unfortunately, in our modern world, someone so disciplined could simply go to a different church. Now, it's not our responsibility to chase them around and make sure everybody knows about them. Oh, you're going to this job. I'm going to follow you and tell them all about you. No, that's, no, don't take it. That's what the Corinthians would have done, I can imagine. Taking it to, the pendulum would swing over and they'd chase people around. I wonder if there's a fourth Corinthians and Paul dealt with that. We'll find out. Uh, much prayer would be involved, and while relationships would be somewhat severed, it would be important to make certain that the person knew they would be welcomed back upon repentance. And the only way that can really be truly done, would someone could know that if they repented, they'd be welcomed back, is if they were from a body where maybe that had happened. It's so important that once you deal with someone in this way, you turn them out, you excommunicate them. If they repent, they need to be welcomed home. Welcomed home with, with joy. And the Corinthians didn't do that. And we'll see that in a later chapter. 
Um, this may very well be one of the most difficult responsibilities a body has in some ways in this modern world. And so it is avoided or misused. And it is thus that we have church hopping by unrepentant believers and toleration of gross immorality in the bodies in the church. Because it's not dealt with properly. And they know they can just, especially in bigger towns, they can just go across town. And no one will know. Any comments? Questions? For what, Paul says, have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? In the context of the church body, we have no responsibility to judge outsiders. In our, in our, I'm talking about in the context of the church body. Separate this out in your mind from if you're a responsible, if you're a police officer, or if you're a judge, or in some ways, then that is your calling and your responsibility to be a judge in those cases. But as a church body, we are not, we are not, we have no responsibility to judge outsiders uh, in this way. It's our responsibility to judge ourselves. Peter said judgment must begin at the house of God. It's always easier to judge people we don't know. We can just write them off when they do something or say something intolerant, wicked, or unkind. It's far more difficult to look within the body and see someone besmirching the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by their actions and then do something about it. It's far more difficult, far more painful, but far more important. Remember what Paul said at the beginning of this chapter. He said, you should be mourning this. You should be mourning this. It should make your hearts break. And... And if I could, just we need to wrap all of this with that. There's no room in the body of Christ for us to be delighted about booting someone from our midst. No room. It should be with pain, with prayer, with sadness, with mourning, as Paul put it. Because there's only one reason to do it. Only one reason. And that is so that they will return to the Lord Jesus Christ. Any comments about verse 12? Verse 13, we'll finish up with this. But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Paul counsels the Christians, the Corinthians, to remember that God will judge all unbelievers in the final analysis. Our responsibility is to judge those within the church and to remove wickedness from it so as not to leaven the church, spread sin within it, destroy its message, and impede the praise of the Father. This is not to say that Christians who are in positions of responsibility in the world, again, do not have a say in dealing with the wickedness in a judicial and legal way. That's not what I'm saying. Paul is dealing with the church here. The counsel, he counsels the Corinthians in no uncertain terms to remove the wicked man from among themselves. And I just want to look at, there are three kinds of people in the world. There are two types of cars. There's probably, there's more than four purposes of church discipline. But here are four purposes of church discipline. Number one, church discipline publicly vindicates God, God's honor and holiness. God is always separated from sin and he will not tolerate it. Indeed, he sent his son to pay its penalty and to redeem all who would believe. When churches properly discipline sinning members, the world sees the seriousness of obedience to a holy God. Number two, church discipline restores the purity of a local body and deters others from sinning. The, the leaven is removed, as Paul said. Proper application of church discipline returns a local body to its unleavened position. It also creates pressure for others with secret sin to deal with it, and it dissuades others from similar behavior. It shows the blessing of repentance and the healing power of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Number three, church discipline displays God's standards of holiness to the world and draws a line between the church and the world. Proper, unfortunately, the modern church seems bent on showing the world that we are just like them. We're just like you guys. Proper church discipline shows the difference between God's ways and the ways of the world. It lifts the church back into its proper place of being a godly example, and it creates opportunity for the gospel. Number four, effective church discipline conveys biblical love and seeks to restore the sinner. And this is what has to wrap all of this. Like, it just has to, to, to surround it. It conveys the goal of all biblical church discipline is to restore the one sinning to godly living. It shows a true love towards the sinning brother in that the church is willing to do what is necessary to save their souls in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is hard. Any of you who have ever been involved with it, you know it's hard. It's painful. And it should be. It should be. It shouldn't be just a simple, smug activity that we, we engage in once every three months. Let's have a church discipline day. And then we'll have a barbecue, you know. Chapter 5, wrapping up chapter 5. Chapter 5 presents us with the beginning of Paul's rebuke of specific transgressions in the Corinthian body. The Corinthians were tolerating a sin that even pagans shunned. Paul's concern about that sin was overshadowed by his deep concern for a church that would not deal with immorality in the body. He reminds them of the advice of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 5 regarding dealing with an erring brother. He warns the Corinthians that such toleration of evil in their midst will leaven, that is, destroy the entire body. It will work its way through the body. He then begins dealing with some of the pendulum swings of the Corinthians. While they were tolerating a so-called brother living in horrendous sin, they would not associate with believers who were living in sin. Paul never taught that this, never taught this, and he reminded them of that. He closes this chapter with the advice to judge themselves to expel the wickedness from among them. This is advice that the modern church would do well to heed. Unfortunately, however, in many cases, it is not sin in the body so much as sin in the pulpit that needs to be dealt with, although that is part of the body. So, it's an interesting chapter, and one of the wonderful things about God's Word is you need context. You need chapter, you need book context, but this chapter has a wealth all by itself of information about how to live the Christian life. And uh, that's one of the reasons I'm so grateful that he has given us his word so that we have, by the, by, the, by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the means to be the kind of believers that the world sees. And they see a difference. They see a difference between the church and the world. And, and in many cases, I don't think they do. So, any comments or questions about... You talk about this man, the man that was living in sin with his father's wife. It's it's assumed by most that I read that this man was probably a believer. Now, what ends up happening is a local area may have a specific kind of wickedness that goes on in that area. That will be the wickedness that can most likely infect the local church. Well, in Greece, um, this was it, there was a lot of immorality. So 
I'm, I'm trying to give you an example, and this is going to be a poor example. But let's say we lived in a community where, where ex-bank robbers had all, been, had all been expatriated to this area. Or repatriated, I should say, to this area. Well, that would be the, pro, the, the, the primary kind of thinking of sinning that, would infect, that could infect the local church. Bank robbers would get saved. They would go to the church. Eight or ten bank robbers would be in the same church. I know this is really simple, simplistic. But do you get what I'm saying? Okay, well, in Greece, at the time, gross immorality. Um, remember I read that, the, that, I can't remember the exact quote, but they had, they had uh, mistresses for pleasure, concubines for, for the body, and wives to bear legitimate children. What could go wrong? I mean, you know, so that was what the, the Corinthian church was immersed in. So people would come out of that lifestyle into the church. And if it was that kind of lifestyle that the Holy Spirit, and I say this with a, from an anthropomorphic uh, perspective, because the Holy Spirit has no problem doing anything. But imagine the work he has to do to get that kind of thought processes, that kind of actions expunged from the new believers that have come into this church. So that was what they were immersed in, in that culture. And so they're in the church. The movie theaters are still there. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking modern. The, the advertisements are still there. The television shows are still there. The, the, the new Christian has now the opportunity, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Spirit, to begin exercising the fact that they have been released from the dominion of sin. Safe. But they have to do it step by step, day by day, uh, practically. Not doing the things that they did before. And it would be, is it not easy to fall back into old patterns? So, accountability would be important with other believers. And that's where the, that's where the body comes in. So, do you, does that answer your question? Yeah. That it would have, yes, it came from out in the sense that that was what the culture was. But once it was in the church, Paul said, get it out. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Because it would continue to spread. Young people would grow up and they'd say, well, what about him? He's doing that. He's still in the church. No big deal, is it? And so that's what would happen. Any other questions or comments, Jenny? Right. Culture. Cultural needs, culture needs to be respected, but not sin. So if the culture has incorporated, uh, I'm trying to think of the headhunter tribes. It was, it was the way you demonstrated your ability was to eat your, your conquered enemies brain or something like that. Pardon? Yeah. Okay, so you come into the church. That's no longer the way you show that. There are other ways to show. <laughs> you, you, you see, it's like, so that part of the culture has got to go. But maybe the, the way they did their hair or, or painted their body. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm, getting into, I'm getting off into the weeds that I don't have the, the qualifications to get off into. But... Uh, Anything that was gross, that was gross sin, that was that's described in Scripture, that's got to go. I'm trying to think of a cultural thing that could stay. Yes, and that's the difference, you know. And it's and it's a difficult gossip is a difficult sin to break, very difficult. Um, <laughs> holy mackerel, a very difficult one. You've got your work cut out for you. Uh, but but you know, God writes the last chapter, and who knows what it's going to take to to cause that. Especially in the church. Once it goes from the church, though, the community is going to start seeing that. Is it a small community? Very tiny. Okay, yeah. In those kind of situations, the church, the church has the potential to be a, a wonderful, a wonderful 
marked influence on the community. What's your name? Can we pray for you? Carly and Daniel. Okay. So that that's just something we would be delighted to pray for you guys about. Okay. Any other comments before we close in prayer? Lord, we thank you that there is no besetting sin, no issue in our lives that does not come under the power and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit and of yourself. And so we commit to living godly lives. First, because we want to honor you and we want to give you glory and we want to give you praise and show that you, what you have chosen, what you have given to us is a blessed thing indeed. But secondly, so that the world will see the difference and that they will come to the foot of the cross and turn to the Savior. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.